Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The title for this week's floretry selection is Nature. Last night the moon was quite bright full of late spring wonder that looms larger than life along the horizon, so near yet so far. A clear mirror that redirects solar rays to reveal the path before me. Tonight, clouds are on the loose and seem intent on hiding the truth about something that I know still exists, even though proof is hard to come by. When floating shrouds are like veils in an elusive dance of dark and light. Tomorrow rain will move in, for I can feel this in my soul. And the game of hide and seek which God's children have been playing will soon disappear behind one of life's storms that may go on for a day, perhaps more. What sort of dawn is heading this way, I wonder? Will the rain fall with a gentle hope that nurtures hearts, or resound with thunder and a display of power that fills one's being with feelings of awe and respect? Will the winds howl with a fury that moves flimsy foundations to trembling and perhaps disaster, or blow as if from a phantom's breath that caress weary spirits like the laughter of innocence from our youth? There is something about weather which lends itself to reflection, merging seamlessly with stray thoughts and emotions that, like ocean rivers, are flowing mysteries, running from here to there, yet one knows not why. Staring into ghostly mists that shift, trying to discern some shape or pattern, sensing that beyond one's vision, just, is a presence, waiting for something, Patiently. Be still to listen for a way and purpose. Moving amidst shadow lands where who knows what fateful things may lurk, the sound of destiny fills the night. The journey is underway. One cannot go back, so one has no choice but to go on, to be and to die. The title of today's short story is What's in a Word? There once was a man, let us call him Earl, who liked to read about mysticism, and as a result of his studies, 
he knew a fair amount about the theory of various esoteric traditions. Although Earl, for reasons he had never been able to understand fully, was intrigued by the teachings and stories of the mystics, nevertheless he had a lot of reservations about whether much of what he read was actually true. Because he lived in a rather remote region, Earl had very little opportunity to come in contact with people who were actively involved in mystical practices. Even when he went into some of the more populated areas of his country, and despite persistent efforts over many years, he had not been able to locate an actual spiritual guide. If he were able to meet with a mystical teacher, Earl had lots of questions to ask. For the most part, the books he had read were good, at least as far as they went, but there were many issues that needed to be probed in a way that just wasn't possible through books. Via snail mail and email, Earl had tried to contact the authors and publishers of several of the mystical books that he particularly liked. However, in each of these instances, his attempts had gone unrequited. He was beginning to suspect that perhaps the reason why his efforts had gone nowhere was because, in fact, there really was nowhere to go. Maybe the authors were hiding from him because they knew the whole mystical idea was just a big hoax and didn't appreciate people asking embarrassing questions, questions which might affect their book sales should their answers prove inadequate or implausible and then become known to the general public. Still, Earl's heart was restless. The doubts he had were very hard to ignore, and yet he also fervently hoped there was some element of truth in the books he had been reading. During one of his vacation periods, Earl had decided to visit a famous resort along the west coast of his country. Between difficulties at work and his constant vacillation about whether or not to pursue the mystical path any further than just reading books, Earl felt he needed to just get away from things for a while. And since he always had wanted to visit this specific resort area, he thought he would try to accomplish several goals at the same time. On the fourth day of his vacation, Earl was reading a local paper in search of something interesting to do when an ad caught his attention. A woman from someplace he had never heard of was going to give a lecture on mysticism that evening in the city's main library. Apparently, the woman was a highly regarded spiritual teacher, although this might have been just promotional hype. Because there was going to be a question-and-answer session following the talk, Earl believed the event was tailor-made for his needs. Not only would he get a chance to listen to the answers given to the questions asked by others, but, as well, he might even be able to ask a question or two of his own. This was too good an opportunity to pass up. That evening, Earl found his way to the library's auditorium where the talk was to be given. While there was quite a few empty seats, nonetheless, Earl was somewhat surprised at the number of people who had showed up. Although much of the material covered by the speaker already was familiar to Earl from his previous studies of the literature, it was quite informative and did supply some insights which were new to him. The next portion of the program, that is the question and answer session, was the aspect that most interested Earl and he awaited it eagerly. 
The first four or five questions which were raised by people in the audience annoyed Earl, for they could have been answered by the people themselves if they had listened attentively to the speaker. Earl was becoming frustrated because the time allotted for the Q&A session was rapidly being consumed by unnecessary questions. Ever since he had come across the ad in the paper, Earl had been trying to think of what would be the best question to ask, for he might only get one opportunity to do so. He found it an excruciating exercise to try to distill all his doubts, questions, worries, and concerns down to one or two questions, but he finally had settled on just one question. Earl had decided to raise a question which would give expression to his skeptical side. He knew the issue he wished to raise would be rather confrontational, but he felt justified in asking it, and who knows, other people attending the talk might be grateful to him for broaching the subject. When the speaker asked for another question, Earl raised his hand and hoped the intensity of his body language might attract the woman's attention. His hopes were realized for the woman pointed to him and waited for him to state his question. Earl rose and began, I enjoyed your talk and found it very stimulating, but I must confess that I have many doubts about the amount of truth that exists in what you have to say. Part of me would like to believe you, but there is another part of me which finds much of what you say which, let us say, strains credulity. So here is my question and I would like you to answer me as truthfully as possible. He paused for a few seconds, mentally composing his question, and then took the verbal plunge. In your talk, you mentioned the idea of chanting the name of divinity, and indicated this to be a very important practice on virtually every mystical path. Now, why should I, or anyone here, believe that merely repeating a few words will be able to change one's spiritual condition? The woman waited a few seconds to make sure that Earl had completed his question, and when she saw that this was the case, she began to respond. She looked directly at Earl and asked a question. What is your name, please? Earl spoke his name. She closed her eyes and was silent, as if concentrating very hard on something. A few moments passed, and then she opened her eyes again. Once again, she looked at Earl and spoke. Your father was a dishonest man. He cheated the people he worked for. He stole money from several of the community organizations with which he was affiliated. He lied to you about many things. Moreover, your mother was unfaithful to your father. She had numerous affairs with men from your father's workplace, as well as with the husbands of some of the women in your neighborhood. The speaker was about to go on when Earl interrupted her. He was more angry than he could ever remember being. He shouted at her, spittle, jettisoning from his mouth. You have no right to say these things. You don't even know my parents. You've never met them. I want no, I demand an apology from you. I really don't know who you think you are, but I have never been so hurt in all my life. I hope to come here tonight and have enlightenment. And I have become now, I know that you and your kind lady are nothing but con artists. The woman held up her hand as if pleading for Earl to stop. But Earl was so beside himself with anger and outrage that it was a few minutes before he stopped berating the speaker. And he stopped not because his anger had dissipated, 
but because he seemed to have run out of words to express his feelings. When he paused, the woman began to speak. I'm, I'm very sorry, Earl. I, I really don't know what came over me. I am quite certain that your parents are very good, decent, moral people who have never harmed anyone in their lives. I am just as positive that they were and are wonderful parents who are pillars of your neighborhood and community. The more she lauded Earl's parents, the more Earl's earlier anger began to lessen. Soon, Earl's anger had subsided completely. When the speaker saw that Earl had calmed down, she said, Earl, I am sorry for upsetting you, but I wanted to answer your question as you requested me to do so in a very truthful, direct way. I said negative things about your parents, which you knew, and I knew, were not true, and yet your condition changed dramatically. Furthermore, when I began to praise your parents, even though I have never met them and do not know what kind of people they are, and you know that I do not know them, nonetheless, your condition changed again. Now, if saying of a few words which are either false or not based on true knowledge can alter your condition in such a dramatic fashion, don't you think it is possible that repeating the name of divinity can alter your spiritual condition just as dramatically, if not more so? This week's musical interlude is entitled Tenderness.
Since the beginning of time, there have been an unimaginably large number of choices that have been made by the beings that populate the universe. Relative to all the choices that have been made or could have been made, your virtually infinitesimal minute choice has induced you to be listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Today's meditative essay is entitled, Vok. Sufi masters often use the term Vok, or tasting, to refer to certain aspects of the experiential character of the mystical process. Every mystical experience in every facet of the Sufi journey has its own characteristic tastes, signature, flavor, texture, and quality. Over time and with the guidance of one's teacher, one develops a sense of taste concerning the experiential character of various dimensions of the Sufi path. Eventually, God willing, one acquires some degree of facility in identifying and differentiating the phenomenological taste properties of various states, stages, stations, conditions, and so on. For example, the dream state has a certain quality or experiential taste to it. One who has dreamed has a sense of some of the differences between the dream state and the waking state. One may not be able to articulate what some of these differences are. Nonetheless, the phenomenological or experiential qualities of the dream state are, for the most part, capable of being distinguished from the experiential qualities of the waking state. Generally speaking, we recognize these states for what they are when we undergo them. Of course, just as one can be confused or uncertain about the actual character of some physical sensation, so too sometimes we may experience confusion or uncertainty concerning the nature of a given event and how to categorize it. For instance, many of us have had experiences, both waking and dreaming, when we, at least for a time, were not sure whether we were awake or dreaming. The reason for the uncertainty may be that the phenomenological character of a given experience may manifest a mixture of qualities. Some of the features of the experience normally may be associated with the dream state. Other facets of the event normally may be linked with the waking state. The experience has a strange taste about it. For most of us, the aforementioned strange admixture of dreaming and waking are relatively infrequent. In a sense, they are the exceptions which prove the rule. This is the case since, despite our uncertainty about what to make of such an experience, in other words, was it a dream state or a waking state, nevertheless, the strangeness of the experience itself has a phenomenological quality or taste to it we probably would recognize in the future should it happen again. The dream state has a certain taste to it. The waking state has a certain taste to it. The different events of the world have certain experiential qualities or tastes to them. Thus, an athletic contest has certain phenomenological properties which give expression to one kind of taste. On the other hand, a musical rehearsal tends, for the most part, to manifest a different set of experiential qualities or tastes. 
The realm of work has still other characteristic phenomenological qualities. The states of the ego have certain signature tastes associated with them. For example, a striving to be accepted by others has one kind of taste signature, and the condition of selfishness has another set of experiential taste qualities. Emotions have characteristic phenomenological properties or tastes, which generally allow various emotional experiences to be distinguished one from another. Anger is one kind of taste, and greed has a different sort of phenomenology to it. The angelic realm offers the possibility of a variety of experiential qualities or tastes. This is also the case with respect to satanic forces. The true self has a unique and infinite set of signature tastes. The dance with divinity is a dance unlike any other, but one can learn to recognize the presence of divinity in one's life through developing an appropriate sense of taste. The false self has a seemingly endless capacity for disguising itself, yet all of this deceit shares certain characteristic taste qualities which permit the person of insight to detect the presence of the false self, despite its changeling tendencies. According to Sufi masters, there are countless realms, universes, and worlds. Each of these give expression to a spectrum of properties which, under appropriate circumstances, can help give rise to infinite varieties of experiential tastes. Our capacity for experiential tasting far exceeds the capabilities of language or the rational mind to conceptually describe those experiences. Many, perhaps most, experiences cannot be articulated with any degree of precision because we don't have the concepts or words to give linguistic intelligibility to those events. Moreover, inventing new words and conceptual categories might not resolve the problem. Sufi masters, for example, indicate the vast majority of the Sufi path is totally beyond the reach of language and rational concepts. In other words, the experiential tastes generated through the mystical journey have dimensions inherent in them which thoroughly resist linguistic and rational analysis. Consequently, Although one might be able to allude to some aspects of the phenomenology of such experiences, at a certain juncture, one passes into realms of experience and taste for which language and rational concepts can have no access, no matter how creative and clever the efforts might be that are used to try to penetrate into those realms. According to Sufi masters, the rational mind and the physical senses, in other words, hearing, touch, taste, smell, seeing, and proprioception are not the only capacities we have for tasting experience. For instance, there are capacities within us which are able to recognize and to varying degrees understand different spiritual tastes. The heart, this does not refer to the physical organ known by this name, is a spiritual capacity said by practitioners of the Sufi path to be able to have direct, unmediated experience of divinity. This form of tasting is known as gnosis, and it comes in many degrees, levels, and intensities. The spirit is another mystical capacity. 
The spirit is described by Sufi masters as being the medium through which one imbibes the wine of divine love. As is true in the case of Gnosis, so too there are many vintages of divine wine which, if God wishes, can be tasted by the individual. Each vintage has its own unique flavor and bouquet. Sufi masters talk of still other capacities for spiritual experience. Each of these modalities constitutes a facility for tasting different experiential dimensions of the human journey towards God. The masters of the Sufi path also indicate that every human being has a unique capacity for experiencing God. This unique capacity is unveiled when the true self comes to ascendancy after the false self disappears. Consequently, there are tasting experiences we each can have which no one else can have. These sorts of experiences give expression to our mystical potential to have an essential, personal, and unique relationship with divinity. From a certain perspective, therefore, the Sufi path can be construed as the science of tasting. Under the direction of a spiritual teacher, one learns the methodologies, practices, and etiquette that are necessary to enable one, when rigorously pursued, to not only distinguish among experiential tastes, but also to determine the meaning, significance, and value of such taste experiences in relation to one's spiritual potential. Through tasting, one arrives, if God wishes, at the very essence of our capacity for tasting. Furthermore, tasting of one variety or another constitutes the essence of our relationship with divinity. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Mm-hmm.